Hey, Rock and Roll Bedheads, it's Brian, and have we got an opportunity for you. You want to come party in our hometown and see some of the biggest names in rock and roll. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, Pantera, Queens of the Stone Age, Weezer, Limp Bizkit, Megadeth, Rancid, Turnstile. I'm just reading the names that are in big print. This is the biggest rock festival in America. It is called Louder Than Life. It happens in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th of this year at the Highland Festival Grounds. And we've got your tickets. All you've got to do is go to our website, wearethestoryguys.com. Right there in the left-hand column, you're going to see a link for Win Louder Than Life tickets. Click that link, fill out a little bit of information, and let us know, out of all those bands I mentioned in the many, 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 many that I, I didn't, uh, out of the lineup for Louder Than Life, who are the bands you most want to see? Name five, send us your five, and you will be in the running to win two four-day general admission passes to this rock and roll fest. Uh, It's going to be a really good time, and I am really excited that we can give you this opportunity. I'll make it even easier than that. Just go into the show notes right now and click the link that says win Louder Than Life tickets. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Louder Than Life and Danny Wimmer Presents. And now, let's keep thinking and talking about rock and roll. It's time for the show. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. I was going through old stuff, and I mean, have you ever come over and looked at all my comps? Like, you know I have a ton of CDs, but I... You have a comp section. I also have a comp section. (laughs) This is why I love you. I feel so seen by you that you're like, not only did you say, yeah, you have a bunch of comps, you're like, you have a comp section. Yes, that's exactly... You have a time life section in your your comp comp section of your time life comps. That's true. Dude, I feel so loved right now. (laughs) I'm being 100% genuine. Like, you really know me, and uh, that makes me feel good. Uh, Yes, so that's all true. Um, Also, one of the best things I have in my comp section came courtesy of my friend Murdoch for which birthday was this? It was probably in my 20s. I think it was over 10 years ago. Do you remember this? You, Why is this a question? You I bought me this amazing this. box set from, I believe it's from Merge Records. Oh, that thing. Yeah. yeah. You bought me the I whole forgot, thing. I forgot all about that. Good God. It's one of I my just, prized I, possessions. I love it's it. It's like slipped my mind until now. So. It, it is a fancy box set that you clearly spent way too much money on, and I still treasure. So thank you for that. Anyway, uh, this moment of friendship has been brought to you by. Uh, it, uh, let's talk. Let's talk comps. Uh, so yeah, I, I was digging through here. I, some I thought you you might find interesting. I have this one. I think this is British, and it's got the Fall James, the Wonder stuff, the Afghan Wigs, the Butthole Surfers, seventy nine yeah. minute CD, eighteen exclusive tracks, a hundred ninety two page book. This is the stuff that guys like you and I geek out over because they literally don't make shit like this anymore. Yeah, there's none of this. It, it, and I think that when you talk about comps with people, they're like, oh, yeah, like like playlists, like mix CDs. Like, not really, because there was like a subculture that came along with the comp. Here's here's another one. This is from Lookout Records and Kill Rockstars. They did a, they did a joint comp. There's a couple from the Christian rock era that are very important to my upbringing. Well, I've talked about Starball Contribution before, which is like one of my all-time favorite things ever. Uh, it's where I learned about like 
songs like Eyes Without a Face covered by some fuzzy girl pop band. There's this other record label that I was really into in high school called Five Minute Walk, and they would put out these comps called Take Time to Listen. Anyway, all that to say, they don't do this anymore because what what you miss is A, the liner notes, right? From like a Spotify playlist. But then you also miss whatever community it's bringing together. So whether that's the record label or whether it's like a certain scene in a certain city, because some of these, that's sort of both, right? It's like this record label is in this city. And so you're mostly pulling bands from Detroit or bands from California or whatever it might be. What Do you have like comps that come to mind as your favorite comps of all time? I do want to mention Fat Records and Fat Mike and No Effects and Fat Music for Fat People Volume 1 through Hell however yeah. many. And I didn't, I didn't even put Punkarama on here. I mean, I'm going to go classic rock. Okay. The whole thing. I'm just going to go old. So I've mentioned Funky Favorites before, which was my favorite comp when I was a kid. And it came out in 77. Monster Mash, Snoopy versus the Red Baron, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Well, so you learn, you old. learn about new artists. You watch artists yeah. emerging. You you may get it because there's a you know for, in my case there was a Dime Store Profit song on this five minute walk thing, but then I got to hear Five Iron Frenzy, who became one of my favorite bands. There's this community thing where okay, we're introducing you to things because we think you're probably like minded. If you like this, you're going to like this and. As much, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old guy bemoaning the loss of this thing, but you can't replace it with just a digital playlist because there is so much sort of physical work and manifestation that goes into the real magic, in my opinion, of these comps. Yeah. And how about this? What was the Judgment Night movie about? Three seconds. <laughs> Nobody knows. No. Nobody knows. But that oh, soundtrack was well, unbelievable. So that's another great question. That's another great thing, right? Like, we're not even going to get really to soundtracks, but soundtracks are a whole other beast. I, I started to this weird place uh, because the story I want to get to today is a story about a song. But that song predates the artist's larger career, predates her album, predates most of her output. And it... it is a song that sees the light of day initially because of a comp. It starts on a comp. Uh, The Fast Folk Musical Magazine, Volume 1, released in January of 1984. 84? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And you know the timeline on the song we're going to talk about, so you know how early that is for this song. Yeah. That song doesn't seem like it's that early for me. Well, so it it isn't for most people. We, We, talking about comps... We mentioned that they might compile a scene, and that's the case for this, right? So Fast Folk Musical Magazine debuted in January of 84. It was a successor to something called the Coop Folk Music Magazine. The editorial goal of this was to promote the, quote, performance of non-commercial artistic music. Now, remember that. That's sort of interesting, non-commercial artistic music, because you're going to know this song when we get to it. This song has had a massive impact. Uh, It started in pursuit of not being commercial, which is a sort of interesting, but it wasn't just artistic music. It was the artistic music from a certain scene. And the scene in this case is Greenwich village, New York city. All right. Now, when, what do you think of when I say Greenwich village? I think the late sixties and I think songwriters and I think, you know, like I think I think late sixties. Yeah, late sixties. Yeah. Dylan, right? Like he comes out of that scene. There was actually a resurgence that happens in the late seventies and early eighties, specifically around folk music in that area. And in fact, March fifth, nineteen eighty two. I dug this up, and you can find it in the show notes. There is a New York Times piece 
this is the headline. Greenwich Village is again a magnet for folk singers. Um, and while the article will start by mentioning the star power that came out of there, it doesn't take long for the focus to turn to one particular guy. And this is a guy whose name is Jack Hardy. The quote is, folk music just means that the song is more sacred than the singer, adds the folk singer Jack Hardy, who has been a fixture on the village folk circuit for the last eight years and has recorded four albums of original songs. Mr. Hardy also edits a new monthly magazine and record album package called The Coop. Each month, there's a record album. That's a funny way of saying it. And one song each from a mixture of established and up-and-coming folk singers inside the record sleeve is a magazine with lyrics to the songs, essays, and interviews. What a quaint time. Right, Brian? The package sells for 108 I'm sorry, $2 at the Speakeasy at 107 McDougal Street, which is open less than six months ago by a committee of village folk musicians, the new folk revival that folk music fans have been anticipating for the very last few years seems to finally be here, end quote. Uh, I just, I love this article for a lot of reasons. One, because it, it hits on everything we just talked about around comps, right? These guys are making these comps and they are putting them into the neighborhood, like in the most grassroots way possible. Like, Hey, come stop by this bodega and pick up, <laughs> pick up your, I mean, it's not even like distributed in regular stores or anything like that. Right? No, it's like when you're going to go get your avocado and your rolling paper, <laughs> make sure you pick up some good tunes. Uh, there's another interesting quote here too, which is where Hardy is explaining what folk music is to the writer and what he feels this particular scene he is creating is supposed to be. He says, quote, uh, good folk singers aren't actually part of the music business. They've realized that there are alternatives to scrambling for stardom. So he's the keeper of the scene, this guy, Jack Hardy, and he makes it very clear that by definition, this scene is not about popularity. The song is more sacred than the singer, quote unquote. Uh, but if you, if you read to the bottom of the article, you will find a name that you might be familiar with, even if you don't know anything about New York folk in 1982. Read that very last part. Frank Christian's show at the Speakeasy Tonight and Tomorrow Night also features two younger singers, Suzanne Vega and Tom Intondi. Is that how you say his name? Uh, yeah, let's, um, talk, let's not talk about Tom. Let's talk about Suzanne no. Vega. <laughs> let's talk about Suzanne Vega. March 5th, 1982. Okay? So that's, that's when this article comes out. She was born... In July of 1959. So the writer's correct. She's not quite 23 years old. And at the time, she's uh, an English lit major at Barnard College who keeps showing up at this Monday night songwriters group that this guy Hardy keeps putting on at the Cornelia Street Cafe. Yeah. And she grew up in New York yeah. and lived in Spanish Harlem and the Upper West Side. And she went to high school, the high school of performing arts and studied dance. Now, there's a key character to this story who is a name that you will likely not recognize, but it, he's a guy named Brian Rose. And Brian moved to New York City in 77 to study photography. But he decided that he would also try his hand at another passion, and that passion was songwriting. So he started to attend these Cornelia Street meetings, and he meets this guy that we've already talked about who's quoted in that article. His name's Jack Hardy. And one night, he he meets Suzanne in a bar separately and they're talking and, and he says something, she says something about, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make it as a songwriter. I want, I want to, you know, spend more time on my songwriting. And he says, Oh, I actually songwrite too. You should come to this circle 
that we have. And so they become friends. And throughout the years, things will happen where she'll ask him to take pictures for headshots. And so some of her early headshots were taken by Brian. Um, They just spend a bunch of time together. And at some point, they're doing these exercises together that they're doing in this songwriting circle. She decides to write a song through the eyes of Brian, who is a young photographer, who's always examining the photographic potential around him, right? This is a quote from her. She says, Brian told me once long ago that he felt as though he saw the world through a pane of glass. And this struck me as romantic and alienated. And I wanted to write a song from this viewpoint. I had been taking classes at Barnard with titles like the dramatic monologue. And I was in, uh, I was in Tom's and I thought it would be fun to write a song that was like a little film where the main character sees all these things, but can't respond to any of it unless it relates to him directly. So first we need to tell everybody and describe Tom's now what that is. It's a restaurant, but beyond that, I'll let Suzanne do it. And this other quote where she says, uh, Tom's was quote, a very ordinary place, a very sort of New York place, nothing fancy, not picture perfect, not even terribly atmospheric, just a regular joint. And that's why I liked hanging out there. Yeah. And everyone knows what that place looks like because the exterior of that restaurant became the establishing shot for monks cafe on Seinfeld. Oh my God. Isn't that funny? Uh, yeah, totally so, weird that those things are connected. When you lived in New York, did you ever go to Tom's? Um, yes, I walked by it. I, I did too. Last time I was in New York, which was has been several years, uh, I we were walking through that neighborhood, and it was not planned. It wasn't like we went there on purpose, and all of a sudden I looked up and was like, oh my God. <laughs> It is shocking because it's just exactly that, you know, and you don't even realize that's in your brain. And all of a sudden you look up and you see it there. Um, Okay, so great. We have a visual. A young Suzanne sitting inside Tom's or Monk's, if you want to think of it that way, thinking like she is her photographer friend and trying to view the world like he would. So here is what she comes up with. Hit some of these lyrics. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee and he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. It's always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter to the woman who has come in. She is shaking her umbrella and I look the other way as they are kissing their hellos. It's like that. It is a little bit bit like a nursery rhyme. There's so many distinct photographic elements in those few lines, right? Like, I love this idea that the whole concept was a writing exercise where she wanted to pretend to sort of view the world like a photographer. And it's, this is the end of 81. Correct. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, And so about roughly the same time, while Suzanne is immortalizing Seinfeld's future haunt and lyric, uh, Brian Rose, the photographer, and Jack Hardy, the musician that was leading this songwriting surge, they have a conversation. They've, they've got to be pretty close. They've known each other for a little longer. So Jack tells Brian that he wants to start this magazine. So this is a quote from Brian. Quote, we would record new songs while they were fresh, press an album, and include a printed insert to accompany the LP. Jack would coordinate the recording, and I would do the printed magazine. We call the first issue the Coop Fast folk music magazine and it came out the first time february of 82 and the fourth song on that very first comp is a song called cracking by suzanne vega and that's february of 82 the thing we read from the times about the scene is march of 82 and that's how this all starts a record a month for years put together 
basically for the love of it by these struggling artists. There's some great stuff in the show notes. Brian Rose has a has a, a blog slash sort of online diary of sorts that has been preserved where you just get to like hear about every minute detail of this time. He's got a couple of really great pieces and those are in the show notes. Check those out. He also points out that if you go searching for any of these comps, now you'll find that they're all owned by the Smithsonian and their uh, Folkways record label. Whoa. I know, which is crazy. Can you? I mean, can you imagine having been part of a scene that's like historically preserved now, not just you know maybe in the bins at a record store or whatever, but it, it's it's been given the amount of importance that a historical institution has invested in it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. When the end of '83 rolls around and songs are being chosen and pressed for the next edition that's supposed to come out in January of 84, Suzanne unfurls this experiment that she did back at Tom's in November from a couple years ago. And she records a solo acapella version of the tune that she now calls Tom's Diner. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. Yes, and I remember hearing this and not understanding why this existed. (laughs) To be honest. I knew they both existed, but then I didn't understand why why... this the acapella thing exists. We're going to get into this, but that's the funny thing about it is that it starts solely as an acapella song. This is a quote from Suzanne. I didn't play a piano and I didn't know anybody who did. So I kept it all acapella and I began to sing it that way in my live show. So imagine this. She she is playing in a in a bar or in a club or in a songwriting circle or whatever. The first thing she does, she stands up and she just starts singing. So that had to get her notice, right? She had to put like a tape together, demo yeah. tape. Yeah, so she puts this demo tape together. Now, I, I think it's interesting because we started with all those quotes from Hardy saying this scene is not about the individual musician. It's about the song, right? Suzanne clearly is distancing herself from that a little bit because she is actively taking some of these songs that she is putting on these comps and that she's doing in the scene, and she is putting them out into the world. But nobody is taking her up on it. Nobody's biting. She, she'll, she'll hit all the majors, and she gets nothing. She hits A&M records. They reject her. She hits A&M records a second time, and they tell her no. Yeah, but... I do remember when I was in college, it's like, oh, she got a deal in A&M. So the third time was a charm. Right? So she <laughs> yeah. eventually got signed. Yeah. And her first record dropped in, in 85. And Lenny Kay from the Patti Smith Group produced it. And it's going to sell a million records. Uh, there's a surprise hit on it called Marlene uh, on the Wall. Um, but you know what's not on that record? That song about the diner. Right. Right. So, so it, it but, doesn't show up. For a little bit. Um, until the next record. And to me, it's like the final countdown. It's the last. It's the first and last song, right? Well, it's the beginning track and the end track on Solitude Standing. And that comes out in April of 87. And But it's different. It's not the same track. So it acapella. starts acapella. And then yeah. there's the, the opposite. Uh, on the end of that record, it is no vocals. Yeah. It straight up sounds like video game music now. <laughs> With, with right. almost 30 years, uh, from, or I guess almost 40 years uh, distance, it, it sounds a little funny. Yeah. 
I mean, she did it on purpose that way. She's described that she wanted it to sound that way. Um, but it is, it's not the experience that if you are thinking in your head right now, Tom's Diner, Suzanne Vega, it's not the song you're hearing. Right. But it still does well. It's, it's the most commercially successful, critically acclaimed album of hers. And it goes platinum here in the U.S. Uh, and actually goes top 20. It hits number 11 on the Billboard 200. But the song that gets it there isn't Tom's Diner. Uh, no. She gets three Grammy nominations at 87, including Record and Song of the Year, for a different song. My name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. Now, I want to know what your relationship with Luca is, that song. Um, I was really disappointed when I heard the Lemonheads cover. That's the only only cover of it, spoiler alert, only cover of it she openly says she likes. She likes and the Lemonheads version of it. You know what happens after a big success like this? There's pressure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, she yeah. has this Luca song. So now she has to work on her third record, and that's called Days of the Open Hand. And this is what she says about it. This is a quote from her. We had de- we had devoted a year to creating this album. We spent a bunch of money. We thought and rethought every note and syllable, and the reviews were mixed at best. I mean, this is the record business in the late 80s, right? They just they want results. If you've given them a taste of something, they want more of it. And so they got Luca, which we should just go ahead and state, is a song about child abuse. It's bizarre that it was ever a hit. And when it came out, I didn't I didn't hear it all through it at all. Like I just got sort of the whatever, the cadence of the song or whatever, and didn't understand that line. It is a big hit. Weird. Here she is trying to duplicate that success of a song that probably never should have been a hit in theory. And so she's created this masterpiece. Nobody is buying it. Nobody thinks it's great. I mean, some critics think it's okay, but it's not catching on um, to the regular mass audience. And so she's doing whatever she can to get it noticed. And so she goes on the Arsenio Hall show. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Biscuit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. Were you an Arsenio Hall guy? Sure. Sure. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. Why wouldn't I be an Arsenio Hall guy? Like, there, there were many things that he did that were different. He had very interesting musical guests on. He had to have Hogan on there when Hulk Hogan was talking about taking steroids and trying to defend oh, yeah. that. That was crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, um, there's obviously the really famous moment with Clinton. I mean, but just in, yeah. in general, like, he 
for not really having that show for that long and not being a guy who I think has sustained in the pop cultural conscience, he had had a major amount of influence. There was one episode where like the fourth wall went away and he's got the microphone and he's walking amongst the crowd and he's challenging their views either on bigotry or something like it is a it a totally unusual thing. He had a different relationship with that audience than the rest of the rest of the host did. Culturally significant. There is a culturally right? significant moment that happens in Suzanne's life. It's sort of unrelated to Arsenio. She just happens to be in the dressing room at his show. But again, I'll let you I'll let her describe this uh, instead of recapping it. Okay. Quote, we were backstage at the Arsenio Hall show when my manager told me that some boys calling themselves DNA, the letters DNA, in England, in Bath, England, had taken Tom's Diner and put a dance track to it. They had, quote unquote, remixed it. And it's funny because she says, I don't remember what we actually called that type of music back then. <laughs> uh, my manager, Ron Firestein, told me that AM and Polygram were considering taking legal action for copyright violation. And I thought, well, wait, let me listen to it. And immediately I liked it. It made me laugh. Yeah. And the timing of all of this is really interesting. And here's where this song gets, you know, it gets into my, my brain at the time too. She's struggling to make this new material catch on. She's under all this pressure. It's not working. And meanwhile, there's this song that is everybody a decade old starts catching fire and she didn't at per give any permission or any planning for it. Have you, have you heard about the meeting she had with the guys in DNA? Oh, do tell. Well, she asked to meet them and she just assumed they were black guys. Um, I guess because like, <laughs> Oh, remix and dance. And then they show up and they're just like nerdy white guys. And she thinks they're the business team. Like that's how insanely ridiculous all that is. Uh, yeah. There's a really good quote from Suzanne uh, where she says she asked Neil and DNA why they thought to remix it. And he says to her, oh, it was obvious. If we hadn't done it, somebody else would have because the rhythm was already there in the song. And Suzanne goes on to comment on that statement saying that it's sort of true that if you take any hip hop rhythm and you sing da 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 over it, it really works. It works every time. You can sing, she says, quote, you can sing Tom's Diner to almost any hip hop song if you try it. Just insert those lyrics. Yeah, I I don't want to get too far ahead, but this happens. Yeah, oh, totally. Right? Uh, well, I, in a minute, I'm going to let you run us down the list of folks who will eventually borrow, cover, or interpolate this song. But first, let's hit on how this thing finally gets out. So as mentioned, this gets brought to Suzanne's attention initially because the record label wants to shut it down. This is classic a big company corporate thinking. They're like, oh, we don't know what to do, right? We, we got to shut this thing down. They just they have no other reaction to have. And it's, it's just a strange situation with an old song. So so DNA claims they tried to ask A&M Records per, for permission and they couldn't get anyone to call them back. So... They pressed a bunch of white label LPs, like 12 inches, uh, and just put Oh Susanna on them and gave them to DJs and record shops. Which is amazing. And they immediately, right, right. It's like the jerky boys. Like they just <laughs> press these things with nothing on them. Well, this is the same thing. Okay, so this is dance and this is in the, this is the early 90s. But this is the sort of stuff we saw happen in hip hop a decade before this, right? Where people yeah, are but, like, nobody will pay attention. We're doing something no one really quite understands. Right, and the label finds out, and they freak the freak out. 
Well, there's an amazing 2008 essay that Suzanne wrote about this whole thing, and she called it Tom's essay. It, it's really long. It's in the show notes. It, it's just excellent. I think that Times actually published it. But this is this is what she says about this. Instead of sending the boys to jail, my manager worked out a deal with them for a flat fee. A&M Records paid the fee, and we retained the rights. I made the decision to call the remix. This is really interesting that she was this on top of it that early, sort of, in the music business. I made the decision to call the remix Tom's Diner by DNA featuring Suzanne Vega, which now is how you would title this. But I don't think in 1990 this is how it would have normally been titled unless you insisted on it. I didn't know if the audience would accept the new sound, and I wanted to make it clear that it wasn't my production. To my surprise, I didn't have to worry about that as it was accepted everywhere. DNA were surprised to find themselves suddenly classified as an act because they mostly were just producers. But they did do something to the song. Something crucial to the song. They moved the last 10 seconds of it and make it the first 10 seconds. This is crazy. Like... I just I find this whole thing so fascinating because it starts as an experiment that ends up on a comp. It gets remixed and it becomes I mean, as we're going to talk about, like, I don't want to overstate it, but this is like one of the more significant songs of, of pop music in the 90s, at least if not, if you just if you didn't just say pop music in general, her individual influence as an artist may be varied it, it, this song just sort of saturates pop music for the now. I mean, it's still saturating pop music, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da that Suzanne already pointed out is like just something you can drop in on any beat, and that's sort of what makes it valuable. Uh, that's barely in the actual song. That's literally, the, the song is two minutes and five seconds on Solitude Standing, and I think it, that part starts at like one fifty-two. It's it's absolutely crazy. And so it's with these tweaks that this song blows up because that becomes the hook. It's now at the front. And she goes on. She'll talk about how she like never thought she'd be on the R&B charts. And my favorite anecdote in the stuff that I read was <laughs> that she used to get, this is like what you were saying at the beginning. She used to get letters from people who thought that their version of the record or CD had been pressed incorrectly. Like they bought Solitude. And they were like, they left the instruments off. I need my money back. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so weird. Uh, but, I mean, I kind of get it. Like, weirdly, I sort of get that reaction where you're like, wait, this is not what I ordered. There are so many covers. She puts out an album of the covers. But, yeah, and there's an interesting background to this because we talked about Luca and the sensitive subject matter, right? And when that comes out and becomes this hit, there's a lot of people who sort of irreverently make fun of it. Yeah, they, they make fun of it. They they make these versions of it that are just jokes or whatever, right? And and parodies. And so she thinks when the manager comes to her and says that somebody's done something with Tom's Diner, she just assumes it's the same thing, that they're like mocking it. And so that's, I think, honestly, part of her reaction to this whole thing is that she just, I I wonder if the Luca thing hadn't happened, if she would have been more traditional in her approach to try to prosecute or, or shut down DNA. But because she's like, oh, they're just like being respectful with it and reinventing it a little bit. She, yeah. it, it informs her viewpoint going forward, which we'll talk about, to be very open to the idea of people playing with her music. She's she's not an artist who is like, give me some of that. I need, you know, I need all the residuals. And maybe that's because she comes from this folk scene, which we open by stating 
the guy who was sort of running the folk scene when she came through it, his thing was the song is more sacred than the artist. The song is more sacred than the artist. And she tends to sort of have this attitude going forward about, okay, if somebody wants to play with my songs and do something with them, let's let them do it. Yeah, and so... You know, she's relieved about it. And this is a quote from her. Suddenly with the remix of Tom's Diner, that world had accepted me and my music in a way that I couldn't have predicted and couldn't have controlled. Other versions came flooding in from all over the world and people made them up and mailed me cassettes. This is wild. And what was I going to do with all these Tom's Diner songs? They were going to waste up filling up boxes in my apartments. So along with my engineer, I gathered all the songs together in a collection called Tom's Album using some cartoons that an artist named Tom Hart had given me when he had heard the song originally. I wrote some liner notes. I approached A&M about releasing it, end quote. A a bunch of fun notes about this that I read. One is that uh, the record label immediately makes money on this because there's no overhead. Uh, Secondly, she has to call all these people who... (laughs) She said it's the logistics were super weird because... To cover the record label's butt, she now has to call these people who had not asked her permission to cover her song and ask their permission to put out their version of her song. <laughs> so she, there's like this whole legal thing that has to happen. Um, and she says that like decades later, people will still come up to her and be like, hey, did, did you know about this? Because they like think it's a bootleg. They're like, right, so- the Tom's, I did too. I thought Tom's album was a bootleg. Somebody put all this together and she's like, yeah, me. <laughs> like I did that. But like the way they released it, she didn't put her name on it. And so people, right, right. people just thought it was bootleg. It is not on Spotify. Um, and it's not, it's not just that album. That song is unkillable. Oh my God. It, it's, in, interpreted and reimagined and used for all sorts of other stuff. And this is just a complete, incomplete list for Pete's sake. DeBrat, Logic, uh, Black Eyed Peas, Tupac, Little Kim, Drake, Bubba Sparks. That's just rap. And whosampled.com says there are 109 entries. It's, for people it's crazy. Sampled it, yeah, I mean, because you just you just mentioned rappers. We we haven't even mentioned the semi recent Fallout Boy hit, uh, or last year's Summer Jam from the dance duo Sophie Tucker. Uh, there is Dave the, Hollister. Dave yeah. Hollister. Okay, so you bring up Dave Hollister. So <laughs> there's a quote in that essay from Suzanne where she says that basically uh, she says there are a few new remixes or interpolations every year. Some ask first and some don't. I feel I have a pretty liberal remix and usage policy. I've said yes to almost every. Every request regarding Tom Tom's Diner, except for one that was going to be used for pornography. The most extreme one that I okayed, she says, was uh, Came in the Door Pimpin' by Dave Hollister. I approved it because I felt that it was authentic to his point of view. So she's very aware involved with all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, this is not being done like behind her back or anything, right? So she's, and what she does, I, I, I just, the story, the more I think about it and reflect on it, I'm impressed at her business savvy uh, because there's a lot of people, even now, I don't think, who would think all of these elements of this through. So I don't know if she had really good management, if she just was paying attention or, or, or what it was, but she leverages this to basically get A&M to let her do whatever she wants for her fourth album, right? So like, the third album didn't do well, and normally that would be a career killer, especially in 1990 or whatever. But she's able to say, look, we did all this with uh, with Tom's Diner. We made this comp album that made you a bunch of money that n- nobody even realizes I had anything to do with. And uh, now I want to make whatever record I want to make. And so she makes a record that I know you like, 
1992's 99.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, yeah. It is a masterpiece. This is a great story. Like, well done. Oh, dude, we are not done. Oh, are we Are we going to talk about the Michael Stipe cover of, of the song that's called <laughs> Bingo Handjob? Can I just say Bingo Handjob again? I, I, actually, bingo handjob. I actually didn't put that in the notes, but uh, go ahead. I just, yeah, I just, I, I just wanted everybody to hear it. It, it made it on Tom's, Tom's album, right? It made it on the comp she puts out. I think that's actually on there. Oh, it's on there. <laughs> so, so, so there's more. Dude, it's, this is a crazy thing. So we could stop there. In a normal episode, we could stop there. But there's actually another element to this, right? So we've talked about the massive amount of influence this song continues to have. It's showing up in pop music. I mean, you you hum this around any teenager, and they know it in some way, shape, or form, right? They may not be able to say the name Suzanne Vega, but they definitely know the do-do-do-do-do-do. The, the, I mean, it is singularly one of the most prominent sort of like melodic lines from pop music ever, in my opinion. So... The song is more remarkable than this, though. One, one of them, one of the things that makes this song really remarkable is how well produced the actual track is. We sort of breezed over this earlier, but you said Lenny Kay from Patti Smith Group was involved in this production. And and there's this other guy, Steve Adabo, who, will, who becomes associated mostly with Suzanne Vega and Sean Colvin, but he's a pretty prominent figure later and just do this okay like think about how many albums you've owned or how many albums you consider among your favorites where you could pull a song off of one of those records that is just one single crystal clear voice for two full minutes with no interruption i mean it's kind of hard yeah like i i hadn't i did this myself and i was like yeah i I honestly can't think of anything this is sort of a rarity right and as Mm -hmm. soon as this comes out in 87 Something starts happening beyond the general audience. Sound engineers latch onto this song. Because if you are a sound engineer and you are setting up a room to make sure that the speakers are set correctly and make sure that the audio is going to reach the audience or do whatever it needs to do in that room correctly, you need something to test it with. And so this becomes the de facto piece of audio that sound engineers use to test systems. And remember... She started this song, bloomed from a seed that were words supposed to represent photographs that had no music. It's wild. So yeah. I, there, there's a, another character in this story. His name is Karl Heinz Brandenburg, and he's very German. Uh, and it is 1989, and he is working on a Ph.D., and he has an advisor for his PhD, and the guy's uh, name is uh, Dater Seitzer. And he was an expert in psychoacoustics. And Seitzer has a, a long history in this field. And since nearly a decade before, in the early 80s, he had been talking to his pals, probably when he had had three beers, about this crazy idea he had where he wanted to create a system that would allow people to connect to a server and hear music on demand over phone lines. And so he tries to get a patent for this idea, like in the mid-80s. Nobody's giving it to him because they're like, here's the flaw in your plan. It is impossible to compress audio down to a small enough size. So now you've got this guy who's been had this pet idea, and now he's advising students. And so when Karl Heinz Brandenburg is in his program and needs a project, he assigns him the task of investigating what the patent office told him. He says, is it really not possible to condense this music down that much? So 
that becomes Brandenburg's task for his PhD. Investigate the feasibility of 12 to 1 audio compression. That's the assignment. So Brandenburg starts to do this, and he starts to make some real progress. But at some point in the process, someone points out to him that he has to account for the warmth of a human voice. So if you're, if you're messing with large you know, mixes of oh sound, gosh. but he needs a piece of audio he can experiment with that is just a human voice. Suzanne Vega is on the escalator to get us streaming music. Dude. That's a real thing. <laughs> so this is a quote from Carl Hyatt's Brandenburg. I was ready to fine-tune my compression algorithm, and somewhere down the hall, I hear a radio Perfect. playing Perfect. Tom's Diner. Here's the quote. I was electrified. I just want to imagine, like, I did read that at some point Suzanne Vega meets this guy, and she says that he looks crazy, like his hair is just crazy, and he's just like, he is the the quintessential stereotype of an inventor. And so I'm just imagining this guy, like Doc Brown and Back to the Future, being like, oh, great Scott, Tom's Diner. Uh, yeah. I, I knew it would be nearly impossible to compress this warm acapella voice. And, man, she's going to get to find out what she's the godmother of, right? <laughs> this is so, a big deal. So she knows nothing about this. They literally perfect the MP3 technology using Tom's Diner. She knows nothing. And there's years later, in the year 2000, there's a business magazine that prints this piece with an anecdote about how they used that particular song when they were doing this. And so she is walking out of dropping her kid off at school in the year 2000. And one of the dads is like, hey, congrats. Congrats. And she's like, congrats on what? And he's like, congrats on being the mother of the MP3. And she's like, wait, what? What? And this is the year 2000. And the music industry is freaking the freak out about the technology. And she doesn't even know. She's the meanie problem person that kind of caused this whole thing by putting this song together. Suzanne Vega, troublemaker. They they will eventually fly her to Germany and do like a press junket in Germany so that she can wow. meet the engineers. And then they play her. There's this great anecdote where they play her the like original recording and then the MP3. And they're like, isn't that great? Didn't we do a good job? And she's like, actually, I sort of think, you know, this doesn't sound and they, and like all the interpreters and everyone are like, shut up. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Stop it. Uh, yes. But this isn't compressed too much. What does she say? What does she mean compressed too much? Uh, it, it's wild. I mean, this is an absolutely insane story. We get to the MP3. We get from a folk music comp in 1984 all the way to the advent of the MP3 that allows streaming music through the same song. If you've got a story you want us to look into, let us let us do it for you. We are the story guys gmail.com. Help us generate ideas for the show. We love it. Why don't we talk about this rock and roll festival that we can send you to in September? We've got just another week or so for you to get your entries in if you want to go to Louder Than Life Music Festival. It's like the largest rock metal festival like in, in the United States, and we've got tickets for you to go see. Make sure and go look at the lineup. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four-day festival. The link's in the show notes there, um, along with all the stuff we've talked about, all these great articles and resources that we were able to use to craft this story. 
and put it all together. And remember our Patreon. You can find a link there as well in, in our show notes, uh, patreon.com. Uh, you know, Murdoch, the, the most recent thing the Patreon subscribers have gotten access to is um, 10-year-old audio of our friendship. Uh, I just posted to the Patreon folks uh, an old episode of Ice Cream Headache, the podcast from 2013 that I found. <laughs> Oh, well, oh yeah. So, which we talked about it a little bit. Which one was it? So it's I the can't it, it's this. the one where we played a voicemail from your dad asking you if you knew who the band Kansas was. <laughs> that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a really good time. Um, and if you want to hear that, you're gonna have to pony up. You could do that. It's it's cheap. Five bucks, ten bucks. Uh, you get access to um all the stuff, and it's retroactive. So if you decide now you want to do it, you can grab uh tons of of episodes that we've had up. Uh, we've been doing this for most of this calendar year. So uh, quite a few things up there for you to grab, including our weekly newsletter. And uh, we just you know we give you a glimpse into the the backstage a little bit more. Um, and it's a really good time. But Remember, we are the story guys at gmail.com and we are the story guys.com to get involved with us. Uh, what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.